we're not missing any uh, football at the moment, no? Oh, there's some shite match, on tonight. Chelsea, I think. Uh, yeah, are you confident of uh, Arsenal's chances of making top four by the end of the year? End of the Bottom season? four, maybe. <laughs> a fucking useless Lego-headed cunt he is. He's what? fucking brutal. <laughs> well, I, I, before Christmas, I would have said the same about Solskjaer, and I still kind of do. I think we're just there by fluke. But anyway. Now, Solskjaer's just a simpleton who has good players. And doesn't know what to do with yeah, them. Yeah, but Arteta is... I need, need defenders big time. Well, Harry Maguire's head is ginormous. You would think Harry Maguire's head would be able to stop yeah. a lot of goals, but it actually he doesn't. He keeps trying to run around. We'll just leave him in one position. The ball will be drawn towards it. He doesn't need to be mobile. No. <laughs> the ball will be drawn towards yeah. it like the sun and the yeah. earth. Gravity. It's That's how things work. Anyway, welcome to Junk Dilemmas, an Urban Wealth <laughs> podcast. Yes, I got it out in one. <laughs> I tricked you. <laughs> that's, that's I knew. What, that's I, what he said last night. No, it had to be done. It had to be done. Listeners, I've known this man a long time and at every opportunity, usually inappropriate opportunities, he makes me laugh. And he's been doing that <laughs> when I've been trying to say, welcome to Junk Dilemmas, an Urban Wealth podcast. But I've gotten it out in one this time. <laughs> I'm really happy about that. <laughs> we have a few uh, things to discuss, Gem. Not least the book, uh, Marabou Stork Nightmares, which we will get to momentarily. The other thing we need to point out quickly is that we're nowhere near each other at the moment. We're uh, speaking via the medium of Zoom. Socially distant Zoom, that is. Mm. Zooming and consuming alcohol. Yes, uh, yes, that's indeed. One of the other things I need to mention quickly we, you've done two previous episodes, and uh, our good friend Mossy. He pointed out that um, he felt the second one was a lot better because we were both drinking for that. So we're well, gonna... I'd, I'd like to point out that I was drinking for both of them. Yeah, you were drinking for both of them. <laughs> You're drinking today as well. I'm going to continue drinking as well today and hopefully this will, you know, satisfy Mossy. <laughs> he has an unnatural quench for knowledge. knowledge. And satisfaction. But yes, he's a man who, who likes his satisfaction. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, it's my first time drinking on Zoom. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to this. Unfortunately, I don't have a cat filtered face, though. Have you seen that video? Dear God, no. You're not on the internet as much as I am, aren't you? Not? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> there was a man on a Zoom call. Actually, it was like a court procedure. And he's speaking to a judge. And obviously a child had been on his Zoom before him and had a, a cat face filter. <laughs> and he's speaking. Yeah, look that up. If you do nothing else over the weekend, James, look that up. It's really funny. It's top of my to-do list. And the other thing I want to mention while I think of it as well is that uh, we've been getting some great support on social media. I love the social the, medias. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, obviously, if you're on the Evo, internet as much as you say, MySpace. <laughs> I'm all over that sort of shit. Well, we're not on those two things, unfortunately. I must hook us up. But uh, we are getting some great, lovely, kind messages on Instagram and Twitter. A oh, big shout out to the, to all the twits. Oh, oh, absolutely. And not least, of course, uh, Stephen McCall himself, who plays Bob the Fly. He actually listened to our episode about the Acid House God, movie. God love you, Bob. And yeah, and it's his and I quote. He found it hilarious. So thank you to him for that. Cheers, Bob. The other thing I must mention while I think of it is our little disclosure. Of course, we're not in any way affiliated with Irvin Welch, and the views expressed today are purely ours. And it will get highly offensive. This one more than <laughs> any we've done previously. I think we will try to be gentle as well. Are you ready to get into it? Let's let's do our thing. Okay, let's uh, discuss the backstory of the book. First full-length story from start to finish that he's really done. I mean, Trainspotting's a bit all over the place. It's not about one particular character. This is 
And I think because of that, it gets really personal. You know, it's not biographical, I don't think. Well, I, I fucking hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a lot of personal, uh, you know, elements to this book. And I, I found a good interview from back when it was published in 1996. This was obviously a proper magazine that you would have physically bought in a shop and held in your hands. Can you remember 1996, James? No. A wasted youth, that's all I can say. I can't remember what I'd done last year, fairness. You don't want to remember last year. It was a horrible year. I suppose, yeah. But uh, yeah, this interview was with Bomb Magazine. I don't remember Bomb Magazine, I have to say. I don't remember it being available down in Margaret Lynch's. But, I think um, it was beside guns and ammo. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> just, just before the Farmer's Journal. Um, but it was with Jane Berman, and there's some good um, quotes, things that he said in what here, but you heard from Welch. He says, uh, I'm trying to make really flawed characters that have got redeeming features so people can say, I don't really like the character, but I can understand a bit where they've come from. I like the idea of someone who was really nasty, vicious and selfish, but you can see their human side. I like that too. I don't know if I agree with him, though. <laughs> I think the most interesting characters, you know, certainly in TV or movie land are a bit like that, you know, Darth Vader. But I don't think this this chap in the, bo- in the book has any sort of human side, really. Uh, for a while he does, and we'll discuss that. But, yeah. you know, I, I think I get where he's saying here. He, he goes on to say, Trainspotting came out first and I couldn't see the characters having any other voice except their own. It would have been so pretentious to put these voices into standard English. But in Marabou Stork, I was looking at the way working class people are taught to assimilate. Roy Strange's fantasized African adventures. He's creating this fantasy world out of the material that you have growing up. James Bond and all that. The middle class character is an all powerful character for whom nothing bad happens to. Nothing goes wrong for them. Roy is fashioning an escape world from these materials and that's why the, sch- the scheme voice, the working class voice was less obvious in Marabou. This country is so class-based and imperialist. One of the only ways that you can articulate your voice is by adapting and appropriating that BBC accent, the standard English, with all the middle-class trappings. So there's definitely less Scots dialect in this, in in some parts anyway. Uh, But he just says as well that Marabou was a book that I wanted to get out as soon as possible. Like method acting, it was method writing. And Roy's was not the frame of mind that I particularly liked being in. <laughs> so we could probably agree with him there. Yes. Yeah, so you can really see how that was the case. There's a lot of personal elements in the book. As I say, not personal to Irvin Welsh, but uh, there's definitely some relatable elements in the book. There was a theatre production as well in Glasgow the same year it came out. And Welch himself said of that interpretation, this was a very ambitious production with a brilliant set. The very first night, Jim Cunningham, who played Roy Strange, lost his voice completely, so the show had to be cancelled. I went along to a later show at the Festival Theatre. I found the rape scenes harrowing. It went on for eight minutes, and it was a lot harder to sit through than it was to write. I think when you write something, you're very detached, but when you see it acted out by committed performers, well, I suppose that's the power of live theatre. So yeah, that must have been a sight to behold. The book was published by Jonathan Cape. And have you anything else backstory-wise, James? About Jonathan Cape? Well, in general. (laughs) In general? No. Thank you. I think you've uh, summed it up beautifully there. Absolutely. Uh, There's a quote at the start by John Major. Condemn more and understand less. Uh, Let's get on with the plot and structure. So the book tells the story of Roy Strange, uh, who is presently in a coma. But the reason for this is not revealed till nearly the end of the book. But it's the story of his mind, essentially, which is kind of cut into three sections. 
We've got his present state, which is in the hospital bed and how he deals with his various visitors. Uh, we've got him reflecting on his life growing up in Leith up until the incident that landed him in hospital. And we've also got the fantasy world of Africa, in inverted commas, which he has constructed uh, while he's in the comatose state. So I think we tackle the individual characters as and when they come up in the story. And we can kind of jump around in the overall story if we need to, uh, just to give it an overall picture of, of who we're dealing with and what we're dealing with in this kind of fucked up book. Um, it's definitely going to be a fucked up episode of Joke Dilemmas. It's, so, it's, it's hard to, it's going to be hard. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of shit going on. There is. <laughs> we'll definitely start with the man himself, Roy Strange. Uh, and that's spelled S-T-R-A-N-G without the E, James. Why, why is that? Well, because it's strange. <laughs> and apparently, Will not be strang. Do you think it's strang? Well, I, I call him Roy Strange, but... Yeah, so do I. I'm wondering it now. It's a strang. It's a bit like how I kind of think sometimes that I'm pronouncing junk dilemmas wrong. It should be dilemmas, not dilemmas. Is that to do with what we were just discussing with posh voices and posh accents? Possibly is. Possibly is. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I think we should carry on with strange. We'll just call him, str- we'll just call him Roy for now. I, just, I never even thought I knew strang. Yeah. Roy strang. Strang. I don't think it is that. I don't know, though. Fuck him. I don't like Roy Strang. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> but he's uh, certainly strange or strang looking as well. Uh, in Irvin Welch's words, he looks retarded with a man in the moon face <laughs> uh, with big ears. Or does he? Which comes up much later. Well, uh, he does get called Dumbo Strange. He does, yeah, but that's ah, yes. him telling us this. We get a narration here from Roy and it, it becomes evident near the end that it's possibly a bit unreliable. But um, one thing's for sure, he's definitely an escapist. Um, he's kind of shying away from real life and longing for this bizarre fantasy world that he's made for himself while in this coma. And he's kind of annoyed when the real world bleeds into it in the form of visitors in, you know, to his hospital bed. Yeah, the, the thing is, he's lying there in his coma, but he can hear people coming mm. in and out. He can hear them talking. Yeah. And any, when he hears them talking, unless it's certain a certain nurse or certain yes. people, he doesn't mind listening to that. But anyone else, he's trying to go deeper and deeper into his coma, so he doesn't have yeah. to listen to their shite, basically. Yeah, it's we'll discuss that, the uh, the deeper, deeper, which comes yeah. up a lot. It's not E17, it's uh, him going into his Africa world. But uh, we'll, start, we'll start at the start. Basically, it's him. It's like a coming-of-age story where he's discussing, you know, just growing up in Leith. Um, you know, he grew up in these high-rise flats. Uh, I think it's safe to say it's a very tough upbringing that he had. Not a nice place. No, no. And it, again, this is Urban Welch's description, you know, that there was just literally nothing to do there. It's like the scheme was a concentration camp for the poor. Um, which is a good description. It is, I think. Yeah, it's a very good description of it. Yeah, I mean, Urban Welch, Urban Welch is, was never going to get a job for the, the Edinburgh Tourist Board. Mm. But one thing that I did notice that I could kind of relate to was when he was talking about catching bees. Yeah. It's certainly something I think everyone's done growing up. Uh, but I don't know if I did this. He's saying here that he, yeah, out, of, out of lollipop sticks, he was making um, blocks of flats like a mini scheme. Mm. <laughs> but he also discussed being quite cruel to the bees as well. Yeah, um, he has a. He, he's cruel from the start. They say that a lot about uh, serial, serial killers, killer, don't yeah, they? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he's using. He's a bit handy with the magnifying glass here with the bees. One thing I do remember doing at least once, which was probably a bit cruel, was putting bees and wasps in the same jar. Did you ever do that? That was just a royal rumble of the early days. Yeah. Some people just like to watch the world burn, James. Mm, it's true. <laughs> but uh, again, this is the first instance of 
a lot of animal cruelty in this book, or yeah. certainly the start of it, uh, which has become a real symbol of uh, some sections of working class life in Irvine Welsh books. Roy as well, he, he, from an early age, he becomes a pyromaniac, he's, he reckons. He's actually quite fond of birds. He reads a lot up about birds. He watches bird programs with his dear father, who we're going to discuss <laughs> soon. He does. So, he's, yeah, he's He's, he's weird. fascinated by birds. Yeah, from an early age, he's fascinated by them, as I say. Which is, like, which is a bit strange, because he's a cruel fucker when it comes to animals, yeah. and yet he loves birds. Well, it's a bit like uh, Renton, you know, was a vegetarian, but was also very cruel. Everyone in Trainspot and Bar Spud was cruel to animals. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's a tough upbringing. As I said, we're going to get to his family shortly, but one thing that I did take note of was there was one incident where he was bullied um, at a chipper, or coming back oh, from yeah. the chipper. By a couple of lads, and there's also a girl there present who who comes into the two girls, I think. Wasn't it? Yeah, but one is that he has a fancy to himself. Yeah. Yeah. She becomes known uh, later in the book as the big ride. The big ride, yeah. Um, and I think that this kind of bullying incident stuck with him for a long time. You know, he everything seemed to stick with him. Though he, yeah, he wasn't a man yeah. who could let anything go. No, definitely not. But I think this. I mean, this it's not a particularly violent uh, bullying incident. It's more just the embarrassment of it for him. And having to go back to his father, who he was going to the shop for the chipper for the chips and coming back and having to admit to the father that some of the chips had been eaten and whatnot. But, um, yeah, we'll come back to that because a couple of the people that were present at that bullying incident come back into it. Outside the Gunner pub. Yes, a lovely spot, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think at this point we should probably discuss a couple of his family members and kind of see where Roy was coming from. Um, Mr. John Strange. Uh, quite a, his father is definitely quite touched it has to be said um, description wise he's got uh, these large bottle bottom glasses on I was kind of imagining an older version of Bubbles from uh, Trailer Park yes. for some reason. Or, or that um, oh, do you remember the lad that was in Brookside years ago Harry Cross <laughs> I kind yeah. of pictured him for some reason and I couldn't rem- I have to say as well I, I couldn't remember his name so I, I had to look him up I remembered that he'd been in the video for the farm uh, groovy train. He was actually <laughs> yeah. on a, a train roller coaster yeah. in the video, but I, I had to Google him. And apparently his real name was Bill Dean. I'm just throwing this in here uh, quickly. His real name was Bill, Bill Dean. He was a scouser and he actually, that was his stage name, Bill Dean. Uh, he, named, <laughs> he picked a good one. <laughs> he, for it, he, he named himself after Dixie Dean, uh, the Everton legend. So another one in there for Mossy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's John Strange. Um, uh, the old lad is brilliant. He's very he's uh, yeah absolute fucking nutbag. Yeah, he's another one of these characters like Begbie who is so frightening yet so comical at the same time. I mean, he's he's a man. Uh, he's, it's weird. They're they're a Catholic family. Yeah, they they support Hibs or at least Roy does. But um, John Strange has this obsession with Churchill, which I yeah. find very strange for a Catholic man living up in Scotland. I love Maggie Thatcher as well. Yeah, he's really got he, he's, he's got strange kind of conservative capitalist views on life. But even though they're living in a shithole, yeah. Well, he makes sure that that shithole is safe at least by patrolling the streets at night time. 
in a, I, with a fucking shotgun underneath a fur coat. <laughs> the thing I love about him is the fact that he's roaming around the fucking the scheme and, and he's hinted trouble. He's whipping out the shotgun, threatening to kill people. And nobody thinks this is strange at all. Not once did a copper's call to his gaff and say, uh, you're brandishing a gun around here. Do you mind just putting it away? No, hey, no. He's, you know, he's helping out the police force is probably the way they've seen it. A lot of times the cops think that, the, you know, certain elements can kind of uh, keep each other in check and I think that's probably what was happening there but yeah he patrols the streets with his gun and his fur coat and he's got a dog he's, he's got two dogs the first was a vicious dog <laughs> called Winston uh, he got killed and it's more the second dog that's in told in the story uh, and he's also called Winston Winston it? 2 Winston 2 that's it the second dog attacks Roy at an early age I think he's 8 when this Roy happens. was riding on his back pretending he yeah. was uh Roy Rogers Roy Rogers yeah I think he was pretending he was a cowboy and he, he's left with a limp and scars on his leg which again stick with him a lot and fair enough if <laughs> you've got scars on your leg you're going to notice them a lot but, but the, the owl lad didn't take uh, Roy's side of no, this at all certainly uh, not the dog is left to you know carry on with its life for, for a while anyway um, yeah the, the dad threatens him to not tell the authorities yeah, he threatens to kill, to kill yeah. Roy if he says anything about the dog but this starts Roy's obsession with getting revenge on the dog. And this is a common theme throughout the book is revenge. And certainly Roy has revenge on his mind as regards certain people who've bullied him. And that includes Winston too. The whole world, he just wants revenge. Yeah. Um, the dad as well. So I suppose we'll just mention quickly Mrs. Strange. I, I didn't take down her, her first name. Did Vet. You? Vet, that's it. So she's also oh, she's um, as well. not exactly got all her marbles in one bag, I don't think suffering from mental illness since before Roy was born. Um, she's most definitely a racist. Oh, yes. Um, she doesn't like the Japanese in particular. No, this is this stems from her own father being involved in... in a Japanese prisoner war yeah, camp. Yeah. And so uh, anyone with the hint of Jap in them, she says, yeah, is which, bad. Which is people that don't look in any way yeah. anything other than English or, or Scottish. Um, yeah, so she's... As you say, she thinks that the Japanese invented AIDS. Um, I have to say, when I read that, that kind of reminded me of, of Trump going on about the Chinese flu there last year. But um, she actually has an affair with an Italian nurse before Roy is born and she well, runs off. She uh, she meets the nurse in the nut house that she's oh, yeah. currently staying in. Well, yeah. she, that's she where was, the, the, the true love often blossoms she in was, the workplace. Yeah, she was sent to the nut house, fell in love with uh, an um, Italian nurse. Headed off to Italy mm. and had, was it three kids with him? Uh, two, two boys. Two, and then, it, no, I think it was two or yeah. three. No, it's two because two. then they come back. The girl, the sister is Roy's full oh, sister. Two, but it is then said that she can't be true. She doesn't know if he's the father of the two of them. <laughs> the nurse that he ran away with, so it could be anyone hey, in Italy. There's a lot of uh, good looking guys in Italy, let's suppose, be honest. Yeah. But yeah, she comes back and gets back with, with John. Who wouldn't want to come back to John Strange? Well, she was a love of his life. He said that many a time. Where was yeah? So that's his mother, and then you have these two older half brothers. Um, Tony Strange is the older lad. He's definitely the family Lotario. Casanova, yeah, he's, in chief. He's blessed with some Italian good looks. Um, at one point, <laughs> Roy compares him to a young Graham Soonis. Yeah. <laughs> 
So he's obviously got a handsome moustache. We've heard Graeme <laughs> Soonis mentioned before in, in sexy scenarios in her Melch books. But uh, there's several tales throughout the book of uh, of Tony's female conquests. Uh, <laughs> Let alone with his sister. Exactly. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, we, <laughs> eventually he ends up um, having sex with his own half-sister. Half-sister, but still, that's still fully wrong. <laughs> still dicing with danger there, baby. <laughs> I think it was Whitney Houston who said, just because it's wrong doesn't make it okay or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he always got on with Roy in fairness he didn't bully Roy no. as such you know and Roy kind of looked up to him a bit and um, the other brother is Bernard 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 I would have liked I reckon it. it's Bernard he's probably Bernardo when he was born and it's just yeah. Bernard now uh, Bernard is I would imagine in Leeds he wouldn't have been called Bernardo no that's probably where <laughs> yeah. the Bernard comes in yeah. alright but uh, Bern- Bernard is definitely <laughs> homosexual yes um, and that essentially makes him the black sheep of the family probably because of that uh, he reads a lot of poems and he he, he writes poetry <laughs> yeah. later on in, in his life, including a, a horrible poem about his own mother getting cancer yeah. and speaking about her, her racism in it as well. But he actually ends up becoming good mates with, with Roy towards the end of the book. But just to go back, uh, John Strange used to basically make the, the lads kind of have wrestling matches in the sitting room. That was, was definitely just boxing. It was boxing. Punched their head off each other. It was UFC, no? <laughs> and that was, it was boxing, you're right. Um, and he kind of favoured Roy in these scenarios. He was well, Roy, Roy was his. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so he was definitely showing favouritism there. And I think Roy was kind of harder than his older brother um, in that sense. At one stage, John explains to Roy that he's harder on him than the other kids because he sees him as the smart, the smart one and the one with the most promise. Not to be torn out like him because he was smart once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he starts getting ideas. Then his, he has a brother who moved to South Africa, and he starts getting ideas. John Strange does of moving the family out to there as well. Was the other brother Elgin then as well? Oh yeah, I nearly forgot about poor Elgin. So Elgin yeah. is, is autistic. He's not in the book much, mostly because they take him out of the picture ship, an awful lot. They ship him off. They do. They ship him when they're heading to South Africa. They ship him off, and does he even come back after that? No. no. Yeah, he it's, gets he. Roy goes to visit him once, and that was about it. Yeah, I have it down here that Roy mentions once. Perhaps uh, Elgin had the right idea. Perhaps yeah. it was a psychic defense, which reminded me of two things from Train Spotting. Obviously, Mark Renton had a disabled brother himself, but also. There's a section where Tommy's at an Iggy Pop concert and he talks about how Scotland takes drugs in psychic defence. So I had that phrase in my head for some reason. Like, they're very funny. It's a funny family. Mm. You're just happy you're not in it. They're fucking oh, a disgrace. Crazy, yeah. They make uh, Malcolm in the middle now look fucking normal. They're wildly racist. They're, they're homophobic to their own brother and son. They're, uh, what else... They hate the Elgin, the autistic fella. Yeah. They, they have yeah. sort of like a family vote. They, will they bring him back? And Roy and the father, no, no, we don't want him. <laughs> Fuck that. Yeah. I mean, it's another example of the kind of poor treatment that someone with learning difficulties gets, you know, not necessarily in a working class environment, but yeah, that wouldn't help either. I mean, it's just, it's tragic, really. Who else have we got in the immediate family? There's Kim. Kim. Uh, she has a few boyfriends later in the book as well. And, and as we say, including her own brother, Tony. So, um, <laughs> again, this is another team that comes up quite a lot in Irvin Welch books. I think this is the first incident of it. But um, I know ha- having read Ecstasy, there's mention of another 
incestuous young lad in that and i know in one of the later books i think it's a decent ride there's another one again so yeah there was a lot of it going around apparently in in leith in urban welch's version of leith anyway but um i suppose just to, to go back to john strange and his relationship with roy so yeah they used to watch these bird programs together John himself watched a lot of television and was also fond of writing strongly worded letters Extreme. to the BBC. <laughs> oh, they're fucking brilliant. <laughs> I always find the kind of mentality of someone that, you know, goes to the trouble of writing letters of complaints to celebrities or, or TV channels is a bit extreme. And he's certainly extreme because the BBC write back to him at one stage and make the mistake of calling him the mistake we're possibly making here calling him strange as in his surname and adding an e to the to the end of the surname and he writes back to them threatening <laughs> to snap them into pieces for getting his name wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and also john strange has a little stretch in prison at one point as well it doesn't go into too much details as to what he did i don't mm. think no previously he has another one where we find out why yeah. he went to prison yeah but he his relationship with Roy changes. <laughs> During, as Roy was growing up, he was just a horrendous father. Yeah. He used to beat the shite out of him, batter him to death nearly one time. And yes. then as Roy becomes smart and gets a job with computers, he's suddenly the apple of his eye of course, and completely yeah, a loves of, him. A bit of uh, pride coming yeah. into it there, definitely. Um, and I, I think as well, as Roy gets older, he becomes less afraid of his father, which I suppose makes sense. Um, there is another incident where he forgets the strength of the father who nearly killed him again (laughs) when he fended off the two brothers and was going to kill the mother (laughs) oh yeah 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 the other thing i remember um i took down here is that roy had some uh comic books uh, specifically the silver surfer and his mother liked to read them as well (laughs) and at one stage the father threatens it throw them out because they're distracting Roy from his, his uh, schoolwork and whatnot. And the mother kind of sticks up for Roy. Ah, <laughs> oh, don't be so harsh. <laughs> Trying to not admit that uh, she likes reading them herself. But um, as I say, he decides to take the family away to South Africa. He has a brother over there hoping for a better life. He's promised a job over there. Um, brother's doing well over there. Very well. Yeah. Uncle Gordon. There's one quick section as well here, I think, before. The neighbour... Um, added a, a knee to their name plaque as well and and john threatened to shoot them <laughs> <laughs> he loved threatening to shoot people he, has he also a, had the gun to back it up which is always good there was a lad who used to hang around with our football team and uh he also used to tre- on the sideline he used to threaten players we'd shoot them the whole time but uh, he didn't have a gun and he was the least threatening man you'd ever meet but when it came to football he just completely lost the head threatening the opposing team like yeah oh yeah but that's fair enough. roaring on the, and saying i'm gonna have you shot and this man would not have you shot, but he just completely lost the head. It's all about the facade, James. At least, at least the father had actually had a gun. Oh yeah, there's a good line in here as well, where uh, Roy writes, "Parents told their kids to stay away from us, and all of them did, except the crazy ones." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we'd move on. They moved to uh, South Africa, as you say. Uh, they move in with Uncle Gordon, John's brother. So uh, this is another racist, a raging yes. racist. He's been fully indoctrinated into the... This was pre-apartheid yeah. South Africa, so it was all segregation. So he was fully indoctrinated into that and believed it. Definitely, yeah. A, a self-made man or as much as a self-made man that you can be in South Africa in those kind of divided uh, situations over there. Uh, certainly another weird as fuck, <laughs> yeah. strange family member as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. He's got a bit of a real estate business going for himself over there. He's got some land. 
And Roy writes that he, he stares at you, or well, he's staring at Roy for too long, which we learn. Uncomfortably learned, long. Yes, yes, we learn why shortly. He warns Roy off kind of being friendly with the housekeeper, yeah. a, a black woman. Um, at one stage, he compares black people to baboons and Winston the dog. Um, that kind of reminded me of uh, the green. I was literally only watching the Green Mile recently and reading it. And one of the characters in that is is comparing uh, the big black man John Coffey to to a dog as well. Never turn your back on a on a dog or a black man was the phrase he used, I think. So uh, Uncle Gordon certainly liked that. Uh, he doesn't get Roy's dad the job that he promised him, so that kind of sets. Said he didn't want to mix family with uh, business. Yeah, <laughs> which is probably a. That's a good, <laughs> loan the father is. It was a good idea. It's good advice, all right. But that's kind of the start of the downward spiral for in South Africa for for John anyway, and for the family really. But Roy then starts to display racial qualities himself to kind of impress Uncle Gordon. He, mm. he likes our Uncle Gordon at the start. He's buying him lots of stuff. Yeah, uh, basically he's grooming him. His wife yes. becomes good evidence That's what here. Known. Back then it wasn't known as that. No, definitely not. He was just a kind uncle. Which uh, becomes evident. Roy does admit it in the book. Uh, he admits to some form of abuse anyway that Uncle Gordon starts doing to him. But it's weird. Roy kind of writes that he found it amusing because uh, <laughs> he kind of found the look on the man's face as he was achieving orgasm as, as kind of just funny and ridiculous looking. But also gave him a sense of power, he said. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, he kept getting these gifts and he kept being treated as the kind of favourite mm. uh, nephew. So he, he was happy enough to, not happy enough to go along with it. But, you know, he put up with this at the time. Um, Uncle Gordon ends up getting killed by kind of native South African militants who were targeting white landowners during the apartheid. Yeah, blown up in his... Land Rover. That's it, and that's the end of Uncle Gordon. He's not a nice character, he's not a nice man, he's not in it for too long, thank Christ. No. I suppose at this point, while we're here, we, well, we'll move back to Leith. As I say, there is a funny, what's the incident that happens with uh, John, where he uh, he fancies a day out in, in the big city, a day he, on the... Uh, so, his problem with, he was, he was losing the pot, he wasn't happy in South Africa because mm. he couldn't go on a good pub crawl mm. they used to have these sessions in people's houses where they'd all just basically a barbecue go around and get pissed that wasn't for john he wanted no. a good good old-fashioned pub crawl he so, wouldn't he wouldn't have really uh it would lockdowns wouldn't have suited john i don't think certainly not <laughs> he would have shot them but um he uh decided eventually he got the go-ahead for a, a good good old pub crawl in downtown johannesburg yeah so himself and gordon went after work one day on a pub crawl uh, Gordon could see the madness coming so after about fucking 10 or 12 points he decided right I'm out here and he, he begged John to go but no John was already after picking up two scouser lads he, who had similar thoughts to him so there uh, they didn't know what they were getting themselves no. in <laughs> so they went out in the piss for several several different pubs and anyway ended up they were best of mates so John at the end of the night said he'd get a taxi home Got in the taxi and how far of a taxi ride was that going to be? For yeah, man lives out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Jeez, but apparently uh, he woke up and the taxi man was rummaging through his jocks trying to rob him. So uh, John, being the the calm individual he was, bet the living shite out of him and smashed smashed all the teeth out of his mouth, which were then produced in court as evidence of the beating. <laughs> oh lord! But uh, yeah, so he ended up in jail over that one. He did. I mean, just the. Just yeah, the talk yeah. of going into Johannesburg for a night out. Yeah, 
He'd never been there. Like, he'd never been. He just... Right. Well, it was the first time for everything. I suppose, yeah. But and this was... It, it, like, we were saying it was apartheid, but it was, it was coming to the end. There was a lot of tension in the air yeah, at the time. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a safe place to be, but it didn't bother him. He was no, just going to piss. Dad. So he ends up in prison, and that's kind of the end of the party. And obviously, as we said, Uncle Gordon is killed. So it's time to come back to Leith yes. for the rest of the family. They come back and have a, a welcoming back party, which is chaotic as well as the going away party was, where there's lots of people arrested. I think John was arrested on the going away party. Oh, the going away party, John's mate uh, glassed the fella and almost killed him. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was uh, crying to the police. I never touched him with, with a broken glass in his hand and your man's neck all severed. Jesus Christ. But to come back, it was only 18 months they, they spent in South Africa, all in all. Roy um, loved it, in fairness. He absolutely loved yeah, it. Yeah, well... He comes back a changed kid. You know, he comes back a lot more confident. He, he was very, sm- he was very smart and fair. Yeah, um, and he had been popular in the classroom in South Africa. You know, he'd he'd been unique over there, and the, the classmates had kind of drawn to him. Unlo- um, unlike in Scotland, where if you're smart, you're a, a nerdy cunt. Exactly. Yeah. You're over targeted. there, if you're smart, you were people liked you. Yeah. Well, life over there had hardened him. Probably not least, you know, the abuse he suffered. Some, you know. Obviously, the majority of people, or some of them anyway, would go the other way if they'd been abused and just fall to pieces. But he kind of seems to have been hardened by the whole experience over there. He had an encouraging teacher as well, encouraged his love for wildlife. And, you know, kind of he's seen a lot of wildlife over there. And we'll we'll get to a section that I think I have it in favorite writing, you know, where he first sees the stork. But um, yeah, he's back in school and to establish himself pretty early on, he stabs the bully. In the classroom, like he it was did, nothing. He'd stabbed, the thing was, he'd stabbed someone before that. Before he went away. Remember he stabbed him with the compass? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he was always, even before the abuse, he was a nutter. Yeah, so you, absolutely. So yeah. you can't really say the yeah. abuse turned him into a nutter, but. Yeah, true enough, but I think. It did, well, he got a knife this time, so it was, yeah. it was worse. There was, the ante. there was definitely more confidence to him, though, when he came back from South Africa. But um, the thing is, he got away with it. He did get Stabbing away with Stabbing a boy three times in school and uh, nothing was done to him. Yeah, whether it's the school he was in or just the known the family he was from or what. They'd, and plus the fact that the bully was a known bully as yeah. well. They they kind of took Roy's side for it, didn't they? So, he, yeah, but he got away with it. They didn't even tell his parents yeah. that he was after stabbing a boy three times. That's not quite. <laughs> yes, didn't even mention it in his journal, no? No, nothing. Didn't even get a note home from Grubby. <laughs> yeah, he has this kind of quiet demeanor, which helped him, you know, obviously helped the teacher's side with him when the situation came to light. When he did come back from South Africa, he started the, the old Coco Bryce thing of saying, I am Rice Strange. This oh, yeah. Started talking about yeah. himself in the third person. He, he he kind of found his identity, or at least what he thought was his identity. Was That that wasn't where, the, no, the attack had happened. The bullying attack was what was before they went to South Africa, wasn't it? Which one? The one uh, at the chipper. No, I think that was when he came back. Was it? But he was still young. Yeah, he was still okay, not. He was so only you've already mentioned. Yeah, because your man, yeah. your man was um, fourteen or no? Your man was the fellow who bullied him, Hamilton. I yeah, think, was sixteen, yeah. and he was hanging around with an eighteen-year-old. So Roy, I think, was fourteen at the time. That's it. And yeah, he was Hamilton was a Hearts fan. And yeah. um, this is one. It's weird. This is one of the things that I distinctly remembered from reading this the very first time in the nineties is when. Uh, Roy says that he's a Hibs fan and your man Hamilton is mimicking him saying, Hibs, Hibs. <laughs> but uh, this is where uh, the girl that Roy fancied, uh, who becomes known as the Big Royd, is present. And as you said, he's, you know, this is not a terribly violent attack, 
but it's more the embarrassment of yeah, it. For just made a fool of him. Yeah, but he again, he it sticks in his mind, and he remembers it for many years. It was after this was a funny part where they broke into the, his school and did a shite <laughs> in the teacher's drawer. <laughs> And then on the Monday morning, they knew her kind of ritual of trying to quieten the classroom down. She'd reach in to, to grab a ruler. Yeah. But she reaches into the drawer and puts her hand in shite. <laughs> and it was at this section that uh, the teacher herself told told one of the, the pupils to um, get something to help her clean up. And the, the young one was called Bridget Hislop, but they used to call her Frigid Piss Flaps. <laughs> And again, Irving Welch has this habit of just mentioning these like minute characters who, who have nothing to do with the story but have hilarious names. There was one in uh, Trainspotting called Perfume John, uh, purely because he sold knocked off perfume. And if you seen him coming, you knew he was going to yeah. try and flog it. There was another one mentioned in that book called Morag Jamrag Henderson. <laughs> It's a, it's a pretty Scottish name. It is a Paris. And I know there's one, I think it's in Skag Boys, where um, there's a girl called Chip Sandra who would basically have sex with you if you bought her a bag of chips. <laughs> and then she would eat the chips uh, as you were kind of riding her <laughs> up against the wall. <laughs> she wasn't in for the art of lovemaking. It was all about the potato. Quite often there was a, a chip on her shoulder. Mm. Uh-huh. But yeah, Roy, he loves the kind of sights and animals of the wild, uh, probably from his time in South Africa. Um, except for when he first sees the stork and, and starts having nightmares about it. But um, I, I think initially I thought the stork kind of it represented an, an accumulation of all the trauma that Roy was feeling and um, the kind of abuse that he suffered, you know, from so many. But I think that the, the identity of the stork changes as the book goes on. Yeah, at first I, I, I didn't have a fucking clue what no. he was like, Where are they going with this? Yeah, it's funny. I'm starting to find rereading all these Urban Welch books. When I first read them, a lot of the stuff... It wasn't that I didn't understand them, but a lot of it just didn't stick with you. You're like, what the fuck is this? This one I do think is quite clever the way it materializes because, you know, he there's a lot of comparisons between Roy sees a lot of comparisons between South Africa and Leith in terms of, you know, the class divide, the poverty that was in the inner city. But he kind of loved South Africa as well. He, this is where he developed the ambitions of becoming a zoologist. And I, I think when he, we get to the section where he's this hunter in his fantasized world, it's like an exaggerated version of this. There's definitely, you know, we'll see kind of comparisons between this fantasy world and his real world as we get into it. So I suppose we may as well mention that now. So, yeah, I suppose we speak at this stage about the the kind of Africa sections that uh, Roy has kind of fantasized, has made up for himself. So it's like this hunting world that's like an unrealistic movie. You know, it's got this kind of jolly dialogue. Everyone that's speaking yeah. in it, speaking... Jingoistic English. Yeah. And they're kind of, uh, they've got these stereotypical locals, you know, in the area, you know, African kind of locals, but mixed in with images and people that you kind of more associate with the scheme. So there's all these aspects of the real world coming in at times, you know, whether it's accents or dialogue, scenery, you know, sometimes there's just a elite building yeah. in the middle of an African jungle or whatever. And the types of people, as I say, they just all bleed into his made up kind of hunting world, which he's he wants to be a good place, you know, for him free from all of that. And in this, there's a couple of characters. Roy himself is this uh, kind of exaggerated, but really normal hero. Yeah. And he's kind of hanging around with a chap called Sandy, his right-hand man. Sandy Jameson. Yeah, the, who's kind of like the perfect chum, the perfect companion. 
He, you know, he's like a, a man's man with kind of these many tales of brave. And he's hunting. an ex hearts and Erdrionians player. Yeah, well, we get to that, mm. definitely. But he's, yeah, he's he's telling these stories about being a brave line hunter. Um, but after a while, you start seeing these kind of homosexual innuendos. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of homosexual innuendos coming in. But yeah, Sandy is based, uh, what's his real name? Uh Jamie Sanderson, I think yes. it is. So I suppose we'll wait until we maybe wait until we get near the end of the story to explain that part of it. Yeah, we we'll come back to Sandy, but basically he's he's hanging around with Roy All the time. He's his right hand man. Yeah, and they they're like these two hunters for hire and you know, they do get hired at at uh soon afterwards by a man called Lockhart Dawson who is this kind of overweight English capitalist. He's a landowner over there. Straight away, you see comparisons between him and Uncle Gordon. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he mistreats his black staff. He's working for a, a, a kind of company that owns half of South Africa, or this version of, of Africa, called Jambola Park PLC. And he's a raging paedophile. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's every sort of sex pest you can yeah. think of. Um, you know, he Sandy apparently was, once worked for him. Didn't get, again, on, didn't get on with No, him. I wonder why. Um, his smile makes Roy uneasy. Again, yeah. comparisons to the way Uncle Gordon used to stare at him. And he has a strange manservant called Diddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get a picture of Diddy in my head. It'd be like a black version of Knickknack <laughs> from the James Bond films. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but um, Mr. Dawson hires Roy and Sandy to kill all the storks um, in a new park that he wants to buy. all his flamingos. Exactly, yeah. Um, so there's kind of this mini movie plot going on here. But as well as that, um, Roy himself just wants to kill one particular, what he sees as the leader stork. The epitome of evil. Yeah. yeah. And he just thinks that if he can hunt this stork down, somehow it will just end all his troubles, all his pain and his guilt. Yeah, it's it materialized from there. As you say, they, they hunt the storks by basically following the flamingos because the storks are killing them. And I know at one point, we'll we go back to it, but um, Roy compares this to, you know, rival football fans swedging. Yeah. <laughs> but um, where I suppose we go back, we'll, we'll jump back to normal Leith. So Roy, you know, he's getting continuous fights in school and he kind of discovers that he likes the pain or at least can take it. Yeah. Um, you know, he doesn't fear his teachers in any way. He doesn't fear anyone anymore. Um, as he says, nothing compares to the house full of sociopaths that are waiting for him at home. But he also turns into a horrible little cunt. Oh, he certainly does. I have down here first, he was reading these comics again and there was a section where the invisible girl was kidnapped and he found this highly arousing to mm. see her kind of tied up and whatnot. Uh, there's a girl in his class called Caroline Carson. She witnessed Roy being bullied. Was she, she wasn't the girl at the bullying. She was. She yeah. was. Okay, yeah. so that wasn't the big right or was she was the other one. The big right, yeah. There was they two were girls both there. there. Yeah. So he's targeted both these females who just happened to be present when a, a, a male was giving him a fucking hard time when they were kids. But Caroline, he, you know, he corners her one day. She flicked his ear in class. So this pushed him over the edge. Yeah, this... But this wasn't years... This was only about a year later. So he was only about 15 when yeah, this happened. Was yeah. But he follows her and basically sexually assaults her. Hmm. Um, we're not going to go into the details, but that's what happens. And as you said, this is definitely the cutoff point um, in terms of feeling any sympathy. Yeah, for up to Roy. then, you would have. Yeah. There, was, there was no problems with Roy, but then, mm. well, he, 
he didn't like animals and he was a little bit of a prick but uh, he was abused so you would have yeah. felt uh, a bit of sympathy for him but yeah that yeah. soon disappears yeah he just goes off the rails here and it's a, a downward spiral after that he, he assault, sexually assaults another boy then and you know a boy that had previously been bullied by him uh, you know he just pulls him into a cubicle that's already the toilet's already full of other boys and somehow gets away with sexually assaulting this kid in the cubicle and uh, you know but goes on about how he hates puffs yeah he's so. he's very uh yeah he doesn't like gays apparently no well he's, but he does a lot of gay stuff yeah he's quite possibly a closet homosexual um again comparisons to at least what robert carlyle played begbie as in train yeah, spotting yeah. which is how he says he played him but yeah, he's developed this whole kind of silent psycho persona for himself and that attracts the other bullies in school and certainly the bullies when he leaves school in, in, in later life. But ironically, he's doing well in school. You know, as you say, he's smart and he gets a job uh, when he leaves school in a computer systems uh, company as an analyst. Uh, Scottish Spinsters. A fine company, <laughs> if ever there was one. But the, the promise of violence... You know, still interests him. And two of two of his mates ran with the Hibs casuals. And yeah. they were always on to him about yeah. doing this new that. He didn't like football, but he said he was interested in Who some cares? of the violence. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. A, football's the fucking last thing on uh, the Hibs casuals' minds. So he gets in with them, um, and again, all this time he's still been planning revenge on Winston too, who was yes, still there, yeah, who's yeah. gotten older, who's gotten weaker, who's probably gotten less aggressive That's threatening as a dog of yeah. course yeah and obviously Roy's gotten older he's a he's a fully grown man now so he can certainly uh, get revenge when he wants to yeah the other girl as we mentioned Sylvia aka the big ride so he's had an obsession with her for years and it's this kind of weird mixture of hatred and sexual attraction you know it's a just it's a great example I think of his kind of warped sense of values when it comes to sex and but also a, a mixture of kind of his low opinion of himself, yeah. but taking it out on others and especially women. So there's just kind of extreme misogyny in here. Um, and, and all the while there's continuous fights, as you say, in, in the household. John is embarrassed by Bernard's, Bernard's <laughs> homosexuality. And, you know, he's blatantly says he's glad he's not his kid. And the parents are kind of, they do become angered by Roy's association with the casuals as well, though. But he has a job with computers, so he can get away with anything. Yeah. I mean, John Strange, you know, it's one thing patrolling the area in a, for a coat with a shotgun. But you're not going to bring shame to the family yeah. by joining the Hibs casual. And having a fight in Aberdeen or something. Uh, <laughs> some of the, the things they mention here, I mean, we'll mention him here. Lexo, who comes into a lot of Irvin Welsh books, he's first introduced here. Um, you know, he's just—he's more of a psycho, I think, possibly than Begbie, but not more violent in that sense. But he, I mean, he—he he hung around with Begbie. He knows Begbie. He's mentioned. He's, I think he's scummier than Begbie. Yeah, yeah, that's a good description. It's just hard to believe. Say, yeah. yeah, Begbie does have some sort of warped values yeah. sometimes when it comes to friendship and, you know, just kind of towing the line. You know, not doing heroin and whatnot. But yeah, Lexo's just a complete scumbag. There's one bit where he mentions that. Um, they go into a pub and spot opposing fans and he'd ordered a round of Becks for him and the lads, but then he changed it to Grolsch because they're heavier they're bottles <laughs> for belting fuckers. As I say, John Strange is particularly angered by Roy's association with the casuals, but at this point as well, he's also keeping files on all the neighbours. <laughs> oh, this is fucking brilliant with his new computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he's right making lists of who's to watch, who, who he needs to watch and who's okay. 
And, and at one point, he's just shouting out the window at nobody in particular. Bastards. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of Whitnell and I. Bastards, you'll all suffer. I think it's at this stage that Roy attempts to do something to Winston too, but it doesn't kill him. He gives him a bone with a load of nails in it. Yeah, so this does... He's this given does, him up, up, he's given him slight kicks and all up yeah. before that, and then he decides he's going to do, do away with him with... Yeah, I the think bone I have, with nails in it. Yeah, I think I have to, you know, this in the disturbing section that we get to towards yeah. the end. But yeah, it's I have here Roy. You know, he, he feels guilty about what happens with the other dogs that his dad killed, but not about Winston. Mm. So it's the, the, it the, is a really like, funny sight. Like it's terrible. It's, 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 the, the, like when you say it, it's terrible, but mm. it's also hilarious. The thoughts of a fucking. <laughs> A mad owl, grown man, grown man, going out rounding up stray dogs and strangling them in the middle of the fucking flats. Yeah. So that's what, yeah. Roy lured Winston too into this area where there was all these stray dogs, and they attacked Winston too. Unfortunately, Kim came with him, so he couldn't oh, pull yeah. off the plan to perfection. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's weird. It, again, I keep comparing it to the train spotting, but there was a section in that where sick boy. You know, it's in the film as well. It's where they shoot the dog in the arse with the pellet gun and he thinks it's his owner that's pinched him or whatever and yeah. attacks the owner. But in the book of Trainspot and Sick Boy runs in, he's on his own, he doesn't have rent with him and actually strangles the dog to death. And this, you know, it's just the way it's written. It's so comical, but yeah, it's horrific. But yeah, this is obviously Winston too is on his last legs after this. And it's, you know, it's just pure cruelty. And obviously it's it's heartbreaking, even for a lunatic like John Strange. It's heartbreaking for him to see his dog in this oh, state. He loved, it. he loved the yeah. dog more than his kids. Yeah. There's another character introduced here who comes into later books, uh, Ghosty Gorman, another Hibs casual. and Pretty white. He, yeah, he's an albino, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty white. They're usually white, them lads. <laughs> they are, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but um, there's one bit here where he's talking about, he, he actually got interviewed by a local newspaper. And to, to try and, uh, they're obviously trying to humanise the Hibs casuals, the, the newspaper is, or at least demonise them in that respect as well. But he's trying to make them look bigger and more organised mm. than they are by having Shea Guevara books on display <laughs> in his flat. And, you know, given the false impression that the casuals have a, an actual cause and they're not just thugs, which basically yeah. is all they are. That's all they're, they're there for is the violence. This is a common theme, you know, from Trainspotting onwards with certain characters that, you know, they're not addicted to heroin or drink or anything else like that. They're just addicted to people. They're addicted to hurting other people. Mm. But it becomes, you know, Roy's writing here that being a Hibs casual is almost like being a rock star. You know, they're, they're Opens actually... Opens up doors for you. Yeah, they're getting a certain type of, of lady attracted to them and everything. Um, and he even gets even with this guy, uh, Gil Christ, who was, uh, who was there with Hamilton at the chippy. Uh, he slashes his face. I suppose, ironically, he never catches up with no, Hamilton. No, he never, never found out where he yeah. was. But, um, yeah, so it's at this section then that we get to the actual killing of Winston too. So it's it's horrific. It's cruel beyond belief. And I think we talk about it in the disturbing section, but he, he basically takes the dog to, it's obviously a little shitty island off the coast of, mm. of Edinburgh, uh, Cremond Island. And it's weird, the kind of writing here where Roy's just acting normal, you know, around people before and after literally acting like a serial killer would and he just you know he murders winston too over there it's mad you know when when john realizes that the dog is missing and starts photocopying off these shitty photocopies of the dog and putting them up everywhere and uh, roy notices that the shitty 
black and white photocopy of the dog actually looks the like he, he looked when yeah. it ended. So it's just really horrific. But uh, we're just he's just in full violent mode at this stage of his life. He's still working in this computer place, but at the weekends and possibly weeknights as well, he's just uh, out attacking other fans or other people as part of the Hibs casuals. There's one mad section or a couple of paragraphs where they're talking about attacking some Rangers fans in a pub. Yeah, yeah. And it's Scarfers. Yeah, they're like slashing people with with carpet cutters and glasses. And all the while, Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits is playing on the jukebox. <laughs> and it's weird. Urban Melch just has this habit of associating these kind of cheesy pop or rock songs with absolute psychopaths. You know, the <laughs> Begbie was fond of, what was it, Tapau, China in your hand. And but who wouldn't be? Exactly. And, and Berlin, <clears throat> Take My Breath Away. And I know in later books, uh, there's there's one coming up in Ecstasy who's a, a big fan of the band ABC. The the copper Bruce Robertson who comes into Filth, he's got the most ridiculous collection of CDs known to man. Just the image of these fans fucking attacking, the, or these Hibs casuals attacking these Rangers fans in the pubs. And they're comparing the breaking of their bones to the breaking of the wing bones of Storks, mm. you know, in the, the kind of fantasy world. Uh, just in terms of the progression of, of Roy's mind and this this kind of fancy world as it goes on. So as you said, Sandy is based on this real life footballer. Why haven't I got his name written down? It is a fucking, just a switch around. Jamie Sanders. Yeah. yeah, he's based on a car, on an, a real footballer who's playing a match in it's the Scottish, Scottish semi-final. Scottish League Cup semi-final. And it was between Dunfermline and... Airdrie. Yes. Or Airdrieonians given their final name. They're yeah. not there anymore, actually. They, uh, All right. Some bollocks sold them. They are... Uh, the diamonds they were called. Well, while I, while I think of that, uh, the character, I, you know, I, I got this other book. Um, it's by one of Irvin Welch's friends, uh, Sandy McNair. He knows him yeah. from well before he was famous. And there's, it's just funny stories about the two of them and other people on the piss growing up. It's, called, it's got the shit name of car spotting. <laughs> um, I think, you know, they often found themselves trying to find cars either to get lifts home or taxis and whatnot. But um, there is one bit where he mentions... Lockhart, the character of Lockhart, who, as we said, was a sexual deviant. So he, he liked tying up native traitors to sodomize them. Yeah, Roy's relationship with Dawson, as we said, mirrored his kind of relationship with Uncle Gordon. But what's the section? I think, again, I have it in the disturbing section where he's talking about masturbating while he has three young prostitutes pissing into against the wall or something like that. Yeah, he gets to treat him, sit down in front of him and, and have a piss while he wanks over them. Yeah, so yeah, that guy Sandy McNair mentions that in his book and says that that story was doing the rounds and that that's based on a real manager of some Scottish football team. <laughs> that that apparently happened. He doesn't name him, unfortunately. But, Alex uh, Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> Surely it would have come out by now. Gordon Strachan. <laughs> well, uh, Gordon Strachan has his. Gordon Strachan uh, lived quite close to Irvin Welsh growing up. Oh. But, um, and apparently used to fight with Irvin Welch's older brother. Hmm. But uh, it's it, there's some co- a couple of good stories in that book. There's another one where he's talking, Sandy McNair is talking about being on a train with Irvin Welch and uh, some lady of the night who is only known as Deep Throat. <laughs> she has um, she has a small dog with her on the train, but. <laughs> Irvin Melch actually starts having sex with her on the train, but the dog was jumping up and scrapping, scratching his back as he was doing it. Three-way. Talking, he, thought he was attacking the, the woman. So maybe that's where uh, Irvin Melch developed this kind of, um, not hatred, but... Uh, Love. <laughs> for, for animals. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So 
uh, being a Hibs casual, so you know he's just spiraled out of control here in terms of the violence. And yeah, it's certainly right. Ra- <laughs> your dislike from certainly ramps up as the violence ramps up. Oh, it really does. And he's he's a horrible little bastard. Yeah, and I suppose we may as well, at this point it gets to the really disturbing point of the book where they've associated themselves with a a girl. She's obviously hanging around with these Hibs casuals. She's not named initially, but she's kind of standoffish with all these guys. Yeah, they, she won't, they, they don't like her because she won't go off on any of them. Yeah, she, they're perceiving her as a tease. Um, and Roy speaks about her humiliating him at one point where he, he kind of asked her for a dance and she stood up, but then she just kept walking. She yeah. fucked off to the bar or the toilet and he was left there, to, you know, the laughing stock. And he's just overconscious of his looks. Then these jokes start developing between him and Lexo about gang raping her. And he maintains that it was always joking for him. He didn't see it as serious talk. But this develops into a situation where they basically abduct her. Spiker drink, abduct her. Yeah. And And she's raped at knife point in a locked bedroom. By four Um, of them. Four four guys, yeah. Uh, Roy's, you know, doesn't want to be involved, but he's afraid to say no. He's afraid to leave. And, you know, I think it... We're not going to go into any details here, but it's, I do it's have... It's a horrific scene. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it went on for too long, to be honest with you. Well, according to Irvin Welch, it went on for eight minutes on the live yeah, stage. Like production. even on the book, it went on. Yeah, that's really, nearly the yeah. worst part of it, is it, the fact that, the, you know, they go off, they have her tied up, they do these horrible things to her, and then Lexo wants to do more to her. So, they, you know, they hang her in the, yeah. in the room. So she can't move and she literally can't move an inch because she'll end up hanging herself to stop her from running away while they fuck off to get KY jelly and then come back to her. And they don't even do that quickly. They go off. There's this whole section. Another section of being horrible cunts as well. Yeah. Where just, they attack, attack some lad in the park. Yeah, just attacking a few winos or whatever that are sitting down. Um, I think it's, I think it went on way too long and it's, it wouldn't actually be credible that for... Whatever about one psycho wanting to do that sort of thing, to get four lads to do it initially and then stop halfway through and then an mm. hour or two later the four of them are still up for doing the same thing. I just I just find that hard to believe. Do you think that wouldn't happen in real life? Unfortunately, you know, I think it probably would. I, I, uh, for that prolonged period, maybe not. That's what I mean. That's yeah. what I mean. They took a break. Surely one or two of them would have said, oh, yeah. here, what the fuck Well, are we Roy, doing? yeah. Roy, you know, as the story develops, we, we get another side to it but yeah there is it there's a couple of in this horrific section there is you know some good writing and it's not good writing but it's descriptive i mean at one stage roy is compa- comparing her face to that of a wildebeest that's frozen in disbelief about to be eaten alive by a lion um, and i think there's one other section i have it in the uh in the disturbing section it's not you know descriptive in in terms of sexual but we'll go back to it but this happens and you know obviously they let her live they go about it they're so blatant and so arrogant about it that they think they're going to get away with this but Roy does become paranoid that he's going to be branded a rapist and he's kind of relapses in terms of all these uh, self-conscious yeah. the poor lamb is becoming self-conscious That's terrible, isn't you, know? It, yeah. you know one of the other guys that was there Ozzy he remarks that the girl got off lightly she could have met someone like the Yorkshire Ripper probably so, been over quicker with the yeah. Yorkshire Ripper in fairness so I suppose Roy you know the, the writing's on the wall for him to get out of Leet at this stage and he moves down to Manchester 
and it's it, there's a, this kind of small section there where he's kind of re almost trying to reinvent himself. He yeah. discovers it. I'd say this part a little bit mirrors some of Irvin Welch's real life experiences yeah. where he, you know, starts going to the Hacienda. He does his first E. He has this kind of new lease of life. You know, he, he never liked. He wasn't uh, a big drinker or a drug type. No, exactly. As as we said, his, his uh, addiction was to pain or inflicting pain at one stage. But, you know, he, he hated rave music. He was always into indie music, he says. But, you know, he really got into the rave scene at this stage. He, he never liked to dance, you know, same reason he didn't play football because of his damaged legs. Uh, swedging was his dancing, mm. he says. But he meets this girl, Dorothy, in Manchester. And, he, you know, he de- develops this love of house music. And his whole outlook on life changes for the better. A bit like that character Ewan in that story Eurotrash in the Acid House. So, you know, he's finding his high. His high previous to this was in disfiguring people in pubs or, you know, getting enraged. He's kind of trying to reinvent himself, as I say, at this stage. But it's all fake. It's all it all comes down when it, during the week when he stops taking yeah. yokes. It all comes back on him. Uh, he started going to Man City games as well. So, mm. I mean, that's that's obviously the downward spiral to oblivion there. At that stage, it would have been. <laughs> But um, he loses Dirty too after seeing he sees one of these posters about zero tolerance. Yeah, he uh, spirals into depression. Yeah, and it brings it all back for him. And he ends up just going back to Leith. You know, he's kind of a lost cause almost at this stage. This is where he starts being more friendly to Bernard or Bernard starts being more friendly to him. Mm. And they, they go out clubbing as well and get eat up. And again, it's probably brotherly love, but it's all fake brotherly love, or at least from his side of things it is. Bernard tells me his AIDS then. He well. does, yeah. Bernard reveals he's HIV positive. You know, Roy is obviously, uh, pretends he's distraught about this or convinces himself he is. But um, he does acid at this stage as well, mm. which he hadn't, he, he hadn't liked to do acid either previously because his yeah. head was already fucked up enough as it was. <laughs> We start seeing Gordon then in the gay club. He does, yeah. The, yeah. We get all these intertwining sections with the Africa stuff. There's there's a section where the Africa scene starts bleeding into the real life and vice versa. You know, you're seeing gangs hanging around street corners. In, uh, as storks. <laughs> yeah. You see, uh, was it, there's a praying mantis yeah. dressed as a woman in the nightclub. Yeah, um, yeah it's crazy. Sandy himself, where is it? Sandy starts talking with elite accent and um, he just turns more elite as the as the story goes on. And <laughs> there's one bit where they, they do meet the stork temporarily. Uh, they try and corner it in an alleyway and Sandy tackles it like a footballer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just crazy imagery. There's in the nightclub. He's getting sent off like a, by a praying <laughs> mantis referee. So it's just weird that they're wearing wigs in the bar. Yeah, this experimental writing just accumulates with sentences that are aspects of of africa the the fake world and the real life and then there's one page that just has a big z on it for the zero tolerance so all these problems all these guilt-ridden images in roy's head are coming to to a head and it ends up with him he's watching this football match that we spoke about with the real life not sandy what's he called jamie jamie yeah him from that great team Erdionians. <laughs> the diamonds. That's them. And he, and he basically tries to kill himself. Was he puts a bag over his bag head. Bag over his head, yeah. Do I have it in the... I don't have it. Maybe I have it in the disturbing section. I, I don't find it disturbing because I, he should have done it a long time ago. Yes, he should. <laughs> I don't have it in the writing, but hang on. Just let me get it here in this big brick of a book. I'm so glad to be putting this book 
to one side after this. I've been reading Train Spotting, The Asset House, and Marabou Stark Nightmares. All Known as the Irvin Welsh Omnibus. Indeed. <laughs> And it is just a big brick, and I'm so glad to be putting it down. But let me just get it nine ten. Where are we? Bear with us, listeners. This is a fast pace. This one, man, flicking pages. <laughs> now here we go. You may read something. Yeah, with any luck, I'd achieved half of this. I was dying. I knew it. I felt it. It was beyond transitory depression. I wasn't a psychopath. I was just a fool and a coward. I had opened up my emotions and I couldn't go back to self-denial, into self-denial, into that lower form of existence. But I couldn't go forward until I'd settled my debt. For me, it wasn't running away. That was what I'd been doing all my fucking life, running away from sensitivity, from feelings, from love. Running away because a fucking schemey, a nobody, shouldn't have had these feelings because there's fucking nowhere for them to go. Nowhere for them to be expressed. And if you open up to every cunt, They'll tear you apart. So you shut them out. You build a shell. You hide or you lash out at them and you hurt them. So basically, yeah, he's trying to justify all this stuff. Yeah, it's all bollocks. Poetic way. Yeah, bollocks. You know, he should have, uh, well, he tries to commit suicide by putting his bag over his head. But all he ends up doing is putting himself in this coma. Fails at that as well. Mm. Yeah. And as I say, he's watching this match and then the images that he sees before he goes into the coma you know, make him form this ridiculous Africa world that merge all these real life characters together, including the famous Sandy, who, again, I've forgotten what his real name is. (laughs) (laughs) But it's at this point that I think Bernard had mentioned that Bernard had said that he'd seen what had really happened between Roy and Uncle Gordon. He knew because Gordon had come on to him first. Right, that's it. He he turned him down. He turned down and was just better at hiding. Yeah. Roy was more but, open but to that it, sort of thing. Roy eventually admits that Gordon sodomized him. So we have that on, on top of all his other problems. And that leads to the section where he's in the hospital bed. And as you said, he, he has visitors. He always has has his parents visiting him. Everyone visits him at, at one stage. Yeah, the parents are mental. They're constantly singing shite. Oh, a big spender, constantly. The mother singing <laughs> She's playing tapes for him as well. The, the last section that in the Africa world, it all comes to a head where Roy and Sandy, they, they stroll into Dawson's Lodge and everything is just fucked at this stage. Just mm. Lexo's in there. He's with Dawson and Sandy. They all start changing into Starks at this stage. Yeah, it's Stark it's fest. mental. And it, end, it ends in there with, with Sandy pointing a gun at Roy. And this is kind of the final chapter in the hunting world that intertwines with the introduction of Kirsty um, in the real world at Roy's bedside. So Kirsty Chambers is the rape victim. Um, she's finally named towards the end of the book. And there's been hints of her getting revenge towards mm. the, the latter part of the book. A couple of the other guys that were the, the other two guys that were involved in the gang rape, Ozzy and Dempsey, they've both been murdered by her. Uh, not huge details given here. I think Dempsey was run over. I don't. Yeah, he was run over. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if it's actually said what happened to Ozzy, but it is said that he's dead. So she's gone on this revenge revenge mission. Uh, for it's the easy for you to say. <laughs> it certainly is. I've mission. I love a bit of revenge, baby. But she's also been coming to visit Roy. So she's been this mystery woman that's been coming in. And the nurse, uh, we must mention lovely nurse Divine, Patricia Divine. Patricia Divine. Divine. 
who herself, uh, she's definitely Roy's favourite nurse. Because she gave him a blowjob first. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's, an, she's basically committed a sexual assault on a, yeah. on a comatose patient. But Roy, you know, apparently enjoyed that, or at least he probably he would have. He would have if he could feel anything, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's been speaking freely about her own personal life throughout visiting Roy when his parents are gone and whatnot. But yeah, Kirsty has been coming to see him under the guise of being his girlfriend and she hasn't caught up with Lexo obviously and I know this because Lexo turns up in other books so that makes me wonder what happens to her probably she gets arrested because Lexo you know doesn't hopefully not well yeah you'd like to think she gets away with it but basically what happens here is well the lads got away with the rape there was a whole trial yes absolutely yeah it was basically putting her through the yeah, she Putting was... Putting her through the ringer again, it was, it was adding in injury to insult to injury. Yeah, all for nothing. You know, they got away scot-free, as you say. But it's actually, it's mentioned here that, you know, that whole thing of her shunning Roy hadn't happened, that she'd actually fancied him. Yes. Um, she compared him to Shane McGowan, but in a cool way. Well, <laughs> he was always a bit of a looker, Shane. Well, obviously, so was Roy. But that's the other weird thing that comes out here is that, you know, he, he kept comparing himself to, as you say, Dumbo and whatnot. But it becomes evident that he kind of reckoned he looked like the Marabou Stork. Yeah. So that's where he gets that association from. But basically, as I say, she's she's come to kill him. and But his his defense the whole time, all the way through the film, there's, mm. or not the film, the book, there's lines where he's saying, it wasn't me, it was Lexo. It wasn't yeah. me. He's always yeah. blaming Lexo. For the like, before the rape scene, you hadn't a clue what he was on about, mm. and then he's he just throws this line in when he doesn't want to hear when he doesn't want to deal with something, and again here when she's visiting now he's, he's roaring. Well, in his mind he's roaring. He can't say that, and it, it wasn't me. It was Lex Oswald. Yeah, he's been an unreliable narrator the whole time yeah, here. Yeah. It was actually him that was the first to. It was his idea. He yeah. he raped her. You know, Lexo was obviously compliant, you imagine, possibly the other two guys as well. But it was all about Roy and he's just changed his own history for his own liking just to kind of satisfy his guilt or whatever about himself. But it kind of ends with her cutting off his eyelids. That was good. So was a good ending for him, fair. Yeah. Although I would have liked if he was awake so I could feel it. Well, he was more or less awake. Yeah, he, yeah, he, couldn't, he couldn't feel, feel the pain, which was unfortunate. No, but when she cut off his eyelids, he could see everything. Um, she cuts off his penis as well. And then shoves it down his throat. Shoves it down his throat. And he chokes. Yeah. And then jams a, a, a pair of scissors into his neck. Mm. And this coincides with Roy's last image of his fantasy Africa world where Sandy pulls the trigger on the gun. Um, and Nurse Divine comes in to find all this happy no, image as well. Before that, he, yeah, Sandy was saying, kill the stork, or kill the stork, kill the stork. Of course, yeah. And then he turns the gun on Roy, and it turns out yeah. that Roy is the stork. Roy is the stork all along, yeah. He's been uh, denying his own image that, you know, he had this big nose, uh, not so much concentrating on the big ears that he keeps mentioning throughout the story. But yeah, it's just this fucked up kind of story about his, you know, being image conscious the whole time. And, yeah, it's mental. <laughs> it is mental. And he was a psychopath. Even though he said he wasn't, he definitely was. Oh, completely. Absolutely. Completely. completely. This is a, like a, a handbook of a psychopath. We get the, the whole thing of him growing up, you know, as we say, stuff that you feel sympathy for him in, but just this construction of, you know, his mindset, just having a chip on the shoulder from an early age about mm. absolutely everyone. And just justifying the whole time. It's one of the scariest things that 
you know, an antagonist can do is convince themselves that what they're doing is right. Oh, he was fully you know, convinced, yeah. justifying all his horrible actions right up to this horrific rape the whole time. And I mean, we'll speak about it in the overall thoughts. Let's do a bit of favourite writing first, though, James. I know you love that. I, I do. I'm a big fan of favourite writing. This is page 677 of the Omnibus edition, by the way, folks. Don't look for 677 pages in, in Marvel's on the Don't. <laughs> As a kid, I did the normal things kids did and the scheme did. Played football and Japs and Commandos. Mucked about in bikes. Caught bees. Hung around the stairs bored. Battered smaller, weaker kids. Got battered by bigger, stronger kids. At nine years old, I was charged by the police for playing football in the street. We were kicking the ball around in a patch of grass outside a block of flats where we lived. There was no ball games sign up. But we should have known, even at that age, that was the scheme, was a concentration camp for the poor. This, like everything else, was prohibited. We were taken up to court where my mates, Brian's dads, made a brilliant speech and embarrassed the judge into admonishing us. You could see the police looking like tits. Yeah, that's a good description of, you know, what was going on in uh, a lot of these areas at times growing up. Struck a real chord with me, that one. Absolutely. <laughs> I knew it did when you wrote it down. <laughs> you couldn't wait to get that one out of your notebook. Oh, stop. Uh, I have one here. It's from page 730 of the Omnibus edition. It says, The only thing which really disturbed me was seeing a group of ugly birds waddling into a flamingo colony and scattering the beautiful pink creatures across the waters of a small lake. They just fled in sheer panic. I'd never seen anything as horrible looking at those pre- as those predators. They were like bent over beggar demons. Their large beaks gave them a laughing look, totally at odds with their dead eyes. I saw one of them trying to swallow a flamingo's head. It was a sick sight, the severed head of one large bird in the jaws of another. That's the marabou stork, my dad said triumphantly, drinking in the carnage through his binoculars. Like I said, the marabou stork, bad bastards them, huh? But it's nature like. That night I had my first marabou stork nightmare. <laughs> oh yeah, this is just a quick line and it's when uh, John Strange was wanted to go on his famous night out in South Africa. And just as Gordon kept telling John that it wasn't safe to wander the streets after dark, presumably in case he ran into somebody like himself. <laughs> yeah, just another one here where he's sort of, hmm. he's fighting. What page is it on, Jen? This is a one-to-one of the Maribu mm. Nork regular edition. Cool. Did I say Maribu Nork? You did. That's <laughs> a better name for it. That's true, right? It's a... Uh, I stand back from him and my senses are overwhelmed by a montage of images in which I see my fist slamming into the twisted, rubbery, sick, queer face of a puff. It's Bernard. No, it's Gordon. His sweet, pukey breath is now in my ear and my spine trembles. What the fuck? Concentrate. Get a grip. That's pretty uh, striking, all right. Striking. I have one here on page 744 of the Omnibus edition. It's kind of, a, you know, about him coming back from Africa as a changed man or a changed boy. I wanted to stay in South Africa. What I had gained there was a perverse sense of empowerment, an ego even. I knew I was fucking special, whatever any of them tried to tell me. I knew I wasn't going to be like the rest of them. My old man, my old lady, Bernard, Tony, the other kids back in the scheme. They were rubbish. They were nothing. I was really strange. Maybe I had to go back, but it was going to be different. I wasn't going to take any shite. Indeed. That's how we started the I am really strange thing. 
At least he didn't say I'm Coco Price. <laughs> there was a good description of Diddy here. Funny one. It was too dour looking to be a leprechaun, too ugly to be a pixie, and too clumsy to be an elf. <laughs> this is one on page 765 of the Omnibus, and it's kind of him kind of feeling bad about doing doing bad things, but almost justifying it. After I did something like that, I tried to make it up by doing a good deed, like giving up my seat on a bus to an old cunt or doing the dishes for my ma. It was just when I did something like I did to the dressed by his ma cunt that I always felt alive, so in control. So while I felt bad about it afterwards, it was never enough to stop doing it all the time. A telltale sign of a psychopath there. Absolute, <laughs> absolute psychopath. Another funny one here where um, his brother Tony's after getting a girl pregnant from the scheme mm. and the father comes to the door to confront uh, Tony and the father. And uh, John's having none of it, to be honest with you. And he comes out brandishing a shotgun and roars, you keep your fucking whore of a daughter away from my fucking laddies or I'll get my fucking shotgun and fucking blow you away. All right? <laughs> Fucking brilliant. <laughs> a reasonable discussion there about uh, prospective like grandparents. <laughs> your daughter's pregnant and you go up to the boy's house and you get that. Oh my God. I've uh, just a funny little paragraph here uh, describing uh, Mr. John Strange. Um, his smile just got broader and broader. And as his teeth were exposed, he started to take the appearance of the alien in the films of the same name. <laughs> Another... <laughs> Another description of him here is uh, John Strange was a man who knew the difference between a cinnamon bracken warbler and, say, the brown woodland variety, portraying his love of birds. He's very cultured. <laughs> and another, another instance with old John. John, John was a, a funny man. He was uh, having a few issues with a Mrs. Pearson from in the scheme who was robbing all the, the drying spots on the washing lines. And uh, he goes... Serves, a right, serves the fucking cow right, well right. Like I says, the fucking ignorant boot. Shouldn't he shouldn't be monopolising the fucking dry ingredients with the, when there's people wanting to hang things out for a washing? That's what she fucking well gets. <laughs> yeah, this is just a good description of the kind of two worlds that he's caught between when he's in his, his coma. Uh, you know, this real life and this Africa world. So it's... um. Things are getting a bit fucking heavy in my nut, in this nut of mine, as the control breaks down and the memories come back. Nay two ways about it. It's a fucking rad scene. I try to hide in my little cubby hole in a darkened well, beyond Sandy and the horrible stalks, but still out of the range of the lonesome reality in that sick world on the other side of the trap door above. This refuge of mine is becoming more precarious now. I sense it to be like a little platform, a small ledge jumping out from the side of the hole. It gets shakier and narrower every time I sit on it. One day it'll crumble and I'll be faced with the stark choice, climb out into the real world or fall back into fantasy land. Okay, that's our kind of favourite writing, so we're just going to discuss some disturbing bits now. And from... There certainly is a lot to pick from. Jesus Christ. Okay, so the first disturbing bit I have was uh, the death of Uncle Gordon. So it reads, uh, the, funny, the funny thing was, I wasn't scared. I just thought that the terrorists had got Uncle Gordon. I had no real fear that they would do anything to me. I don't know why, I just didn't. I went back towards the house. The warm, humid air was even heavier with the odour of gasoline and burning flesh. The smell of Gordon, barbecuing nicely in that blazing truck. 
It never felt or smelt anything like it. While it was impossible for that much meat not to smell, I had always imagined that humans would smell like bacon. When I was really wee, my little my uncle Jackie used to tell me that he ate cheeky wee laddies and that they tasted like salty pork. I recall though that the smell of Gordon was so sweet that I thought if I hadn't known it was human flesh, I would have wanted to taste it, would have enjoyed it. All I could see of Gordon was a charred tin black arm and hand hanging out of the burning body of the vehicle. The smell changed briefly to that of one that I can only describe as burning shite as my uncle's guts popped and splattered as they were incinerated into the flames. The last one I want to do in the disturbing section, I'm not going to read, this is to do with the gang rape we're not going to read any of the details of that but there is one section towards the end that i thought was interesting writing roy says i realized what we had done what we had taken her beauty was little to do with her looks the physical attraction attractiveness of her it was to do with the way she moved the way she carried herself it was her confidence her pride her lack of fear her attitude it was something even more fundamental and less superficial than those things it was herself or her sense of it. But uh, yeah, so like he's basically describing how they suck the life out of this girl like a vampire. But it's interesting when she comes back to kill Roy, he does notice that she has more life in her. That she, you know, she's she's gotten some of that back. Uh, she's got a bit more of a pep in her step mm. um, to obviously exact revenge on him. I think that's it from disturbed there's a lot of disturbing it's, stuff it's, in this and we don't want a disturbing book yes exactly just refer to the whole book okay so yeah that's disturbing uh, and favorite writing uh, we're just going to do connecting lines i love connecting lines jen i i certainly i certainly agree with that so connecting <laughs> lines is where we mention characters that have ap- appeared either in previous books or if we kind of know that they're coming up in other books. Oh, yeah, Begbie was in this, wasn't he? Begbie is certainly mentioned, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's in business with Lexo. Um, so Begbie and Lexo had been spotted in Trainspot and talking to each other. And there's one bit where Spud sees them and says that it's an un- unholy alliance. Yes, true. So, the, yeah, Begbie's in business with Lexo in this. They have a second-hand furniture shop, which is just a cover for them being drug dealers, basically. Mm. Um, I think it's mentioned in Filt that they basically just took over the shop from some feeble old man <laughs> who had no choice in the matter. But uh, yeah, uh, Begbie's mentioned Lexo obviously plays a big part as one of Roy's cohorts. Uh, he comes up in future books as well. He's definitely mentioned in Filt a lot. Who else? Ghosty Gorman, another one of the Hibs casuals. He appears in Filt also. And the lawyer, Conrad Donaldson, QC, he appears in Filt. The main character of Filt, Bruce Robinson, actually abuses his underage daughter. So we have that coming up. Roy also knows Brian, a.k.a. a smart cunt, who's obviously mentioned in the novella A Smart Cunt from the Acid House. And his dad, Brian's dad, is mentioned as well, who's you know in charge of the Moorhouse Against Drugs Committee. It's Brian's dad, Jeff. And also the nut job, Colin Cassidy, the, the re- reformed nut job, Colin, uh, is now the committee's secretary. <laughs> Good, strong secretary. And he also noticed as well, we mentioned that the tapes that that uh, Roy's parents were playing from while he was in the coma. Uh, his dad is playing a lot of Bond teams, and obviously there's a huge Bond stroke Sean Connery connection. With- Goldfinger! 
with Train Spotting and also with the song Closet Romantic at the end of Train Spotting where Damon Oliver names off all the Sean Connery uh, James Bond films. And also John John Strange uh, later in the book is working as a star detective in John Menzies, mm-hmm. which uh, and I think it says it's in Princess Street which is obviously the the place that Renton and Spud famously ran from when they just robbed it. Uh, so that makes me wonder, was was El John Strange one of the, the security guards running after them? Um, they wouldn't have got away if he was after them. That's all I know. <laughs> no, I don't remember one of the security guards with a shotgun and a That's fur what I mean. coat. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have got away with their kneecaps. Not a fucking chance. And I don't think John was uh, in any fit state. He wasn't an athlete, running. no. He was that, more of a... He got gun. this job in, in later life. There's also mention of the it's the character that the four uh, scumbags, you know, when they take the break from the horrible rape scene, they go and assault some other, um, you know, winos that are just sitting around on a park bench. One of them is called Alec Eck Lawson. Um, and I'm just wondering if he's related to Juice Terry, who's uh, Terry Lawson, who's a big character coming up in some of the later books. Anyway, that's Connecting Lines. Great stuff. <laughs> Okay, so we're into our final section, which is overall thoughts. So, Jem, do you want to tell us what you thought of a Marabou Stork Nightmares? It's not a light-hearted read. No. it's. Uh, I think it's brilliantly written. I think he's expanded his writing from the previous books, mm. where it's there's more... Previous books are sort of more action, action-packed, because mm. this is a lot more thought-provoking. Yeah. But um, it's uh, thought-provoking in a pretty pretty disturbing way. Yeah, it's a hard read. Mm-hmm. But it's well written. So the the thing is, you don't have any sort of empathy with the main character in it. He's just horrible. No, initially maybe, but certainly Initially, not. but then that fades. It definitely yeah. fades. It doesn't leave you with a warm, fuzzy feeling, but it is. It's hard to put down. No, it's weird. I mean, it, as you say, he's experimented with writing before this book. You could argue his whole body of work is experimental writing, but I, I do think he found his niche with this one. I really like it. I, it in, it reminded me first of all of the singing detective, you know, by uh, Dennis Potter, which has a man lying in a fucking hospital bed, covered in head to toe, and these festering sores and reflecting on his life up to that point. Um, but this weird kind of stream of consciousness that goes on throughout the book is just mental with the the Africa stuff. There's just this sense of dread throughout the book yeah. that gets stronger and stronger as it goes on. But it's still, he kind of lightens the load a bit with a lot of dark humour. I mean, mm. we spoke about a lot of the stuff involving the dogs is horrific, but there's just funny stuff in there as well. Like even when he's reading the uh, safety instructions on the side of the fireworks that says, <laughs> you know, keep a safe distance. Yeah. I complied with this, but Winston too didn't. You know, just still silly little shit like that. And the stuff with the Dire Straits playing in the, the pub while they're fucking just viciously assaulting these uh rangers fans actually the other thing that those kind of cheesy pop songs associated with violence or psychopaths remind me of was american psycho yeah, who, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah i mean it just it i think the themes of it just change as the book goes on it starts off as a coming of age story albeit a very grim one and you get this kind of whole issues to talk about like the cycle of abuse like you know that his parents are passing on this pain. They came from fucked up families, so they're passing yeah, this true. on themselves. He's, it was mentioned that his grandfather was put away for yeah. interfering with boys. Yeah. 
Like it's just so it's a cycle which is actually it's been proven that yeah. people who get abused tend to pass it pass on. Pass it on, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. yeah. And this whole kind of nature versus nurture thing, did he have that in his DNA or was it the fact that he was brought up surrounded by these lunatics and then had these things happen mm. to him and we don't know how exaggerated those things that happened to him were because it's proven towards the end of the book that he's an unreliable mm. narrator. But, I mean, I think it's probably a combination of the two things, whether you're born with it or whether it's the surroundings that cause it. That's a discussion that you could have about everyone that's ever done any bad thing in their life. Um, we're probably not going to solve it here today either. It's unlikely at this hour. <laughs> but there's a huge theme, I think, of mental illness throughout the book, particularly paranoia, which is just increasing as the book goes on for Roy. You know, he's got this self-conscious image of himself and he's, you know, he's embarrassed by his whole family and it just makes him feel different from day one almost. And that just progresses as the book goes on. These other kind of overall themes of racism, you know, whether it's the kind of British imperialism that the father's going on about or the apartheid when they get to South Africa. And then, you you know, have that racism transitioning into, you know, joining the hate groups. And I can't remember whether I read it or listen to another podcast recently where they were talking about how these people, you know, don't feel wanted at home or in normal society. And then they join these hate groups, whether it's, the, you know, Hibs Casuals or neo-Nazis or the KKK, and they feel wanted, they feel mm. accepted, and they feel they're finally at home. So it's weird like that. But Roy, he's he feels at home, but it's also established, and he admits himself that he just has this addiction to violence. That's yeah. The, so that's, you know, that's again... He feels at home. Yeah, that's in his DNA per se. So you have this racism, you have homophobia throughout the book, whether it's, you know, his own closeted homosexuality, which is possibly evident there, which translated, translates into this fucking extreme misogyny and violence towards women, which leads to this whole zero tolerance discussion that comes into it towards the end. Um, and obviously the homophobic behavior in his own household by his own father towards Bernard, his brother. And then it's like Welch tries to almost bring in an atonement story where Roy is feeling fucking bad for all this stuff he's done. And you think he's almost getting his life on track, mm. but it just constantly catches up with him. But ultimately, it obviously turns out to be a story about revenge and, you know, retribution for the evil that men do. And getting your Mickey shoved down your throat. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. All right. Um, but I do. I think it's great storytelling, I, you know, the way it chops and changes it is it's a brilliant brilliant storytelling it's just yeah. i mean it's to, not a great story to be no it's a dark story to enjoy like um yeah. it probably needs needed to be told but you know he obviously had this in him to tell it but i think it's good the way he kind of takes a what looks to be a protagonist and quickly changes into an antagonist and you still want to know how his journey goes and I think it's a justifiable ends for him, as you say. It ends pretty appropriately. Um, now I really liked it. I definitely enjoyed it more. Enjoyment is the wrong word for it, but I appreciate it a lot more on this read now than I did in the nineties. I remember reading it in the nineties and going, "What the hell is this?" You know, after straight after reading Trainspotting or whatever, or even The Acid House, which is mental in itself. This was just off the wall, but I did appreciate it a lot more this time around. <laughs> I completely blanked out all the bad bits of this. Yeah, because definitely. I remember after the last podcast we done, I said, we're doing the Marabou stalk. And mm. I was like, yes, this got deadly. 
all I remembered from the Marabou Stork nightmares was him had his having a mad father and mm. going around with the hips casuals kicking the shit out of people and thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had completely blanked out all the badness. Everything else, but, uh, yeah. So I actually got quite the shock reading this when all the shit that was in it. I was there. Oh, what the? F- How did I forget this? Yeah, yeah. The but, only uh, thing that I remembered from this book, and it's because of it's the bit where John Strange goes out and strangles the yeah, other dogs I remember in the street. That. Just there. And the only reason I remember that is because. Our good friend Jules has mentioned it a few times over the on, years. On a daily. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't even rem- I didn't even remember why the man yeah. was running out to strangle the dogs. Mm. Um but yeah, there's so much fucking hard stuff to read in here. But I definitely I would recommend it to everyone to read. There's no doubt about it. Um Mark's out of five. What do we give the acid house? Yeah, I can't think the book two, two. Two and a half. I give this three and a half, I suppose. Yeah. It's it's well written, but it's it's hard to say it's enjoyable because mm. it's it is it's a very hard read. Yeah, I'm going to go all out here. I'm going to give this five out of five. Jesus, purely because you this, hate dogs. No, <laughs> In, the storytelling. I just think it's perfect storytelling. As I say, he you know it chops and changes. There's almost a twist at the end. I just think it's it's his first. Proper story, as we mentioned at the start, where he just deals with one character and tells his whole story. I think we learn more about Roy Strange in this one book than we possibly do about the likes of Mark Renton over three or four books. We do, but do you um, want to learn? Do you, do you want no, to learn more it, yes. about? That's the thing. Absolutely. Well, it's. I was going to say it's memorable stuff, but obviously not because <laughs> I fucking forgot it or at <laughs> least too. blanked it out. But now I really, I did. Enjoyment is the wrong word, but I appreciate it a lot more on this read. I appreciate the writing of it and just the whole storytelling, the structure of it. As I say, we've spoken about his crazy uh, methods of, of writing previously. I think it, it just accumulates perfectly here. So, yeah, I, I think it's as good as Train's Button, I have to say. Anyway, that's it for now. <laughs> that's it for this episode, Gem. Uh, next up, we're, we're going to get loved up here on Jump Dilemmas. It's uh, Ecstasy, Three Tales of Chemical Romance. Uh, not intimately, by the way. No, not physically, just uh, in terms of the book. All right. Yeah, I'll go with that, so. <laughs> uh, so we're just about finished drinking here. Uh, the Zoom call has gone way over here. We're into our, well into our second hour of Zoom calls here, Jem. It'll be a massive bill for this. Have you enjoyed Is this your first time drinking on Zoom? Definitely. Yeah, me too. It's it's not my first time drinking though. No, it's definitely not. But uh, yeah, we look forward to talking to everyone the next time. Thanks for listening. Slaw. So